0: Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi,
1: Don. How are you? I'm a little sick today, but <laughs> are I, am here sick. For, I am here for the audience.
0: you It was full on uh, head cold. Yeah. Well, we're grateful that you're here. We'll you're be washing welcome. the microphone. Yes,
1: <laughs> it, I'm, I'm getting over it. I'm on I'm, I'm the downside of
0: it. You are here, though. Yeah, I am. Even though you are sick. Yeah. Would you say, J.J.? Yeah. That you are here because you are on a mission.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, w- I would. Guess I what would. we're talking about today.
1: <laughs> that was not planned. That's
0: funny. I would argue with you that you are not on a mission. Okay. That you are simply a responsible, professional human being. Okay. Here to do your job, co-hosting the Building a Story Storybend podcast. That a mission uh-huh. is bigger and more special than simply doing your job. And being a good human being. Interesting.
1: Okay. So what would you say then constitutes a mission? That's the question
0: yeah. that I'm asking myself, in part because I'm writing a book. Yeah. And it, it used to be about writing your mission statement, and then became about the idea of a, of a mission. How do yeah. you, what constitutes a mission? Yeah. And so I've been thinking about things. And our guest today is actually the ambassador on human trafficking in persons, Yeah. John uh, Richmond. And yeah. uh, he's an old friend, and he's one of Trump's uh, uh, ambassadors. Most ambassadors are to a country. Yeah. He's an ambassador on an issue. Yeah. When the issue is human trafficking. And this man, the reason I bring all this up, he's been on a mission ever since I've, I met him. I met yeah. John maybe 15 years ago. We've been friends. He was a lawyer. Even then, he was on a mission. Yeah. And he was on a mission. He gets into it a little bit to free. People from tyranny, yeah. from slavery, literal slavery, mm-hmm. and it's gotten all the way to the White House, to the State Department. Yeah. The office offices right near Pompeo, and it was just fascinating. As I interviewed him, I just thought, "Wow, there's something special about a mission. A mission gets you out of bed in the morning, yep. gives you a sense of purpose. It helps you process pain uh-huh. and sacrifice differently. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yep. Let's say I did this to you. I broke in your house.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> flung you out of bed, uh-huh. dragged you out in the front yard on a zero degree day. Okay, splashed water in your face, <laughs> threw snowballs at you,
1: uh-huh.
0: and drove a hammer into your feet.
1: Okay, go on. <laughs> How happy are you? <laughs> How happy am I about that? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go <laughs> you're, off you're the top call of the my head. <laughs> um, not very.
0: <laughs> okay. Same pain. Yeah. You are climbing Mount Everest. It's been a 10-year journey. You've saved the money to get over there. You've trained. Same pain. Yeah. Different context. 100%. Different meaning. Yeah. A mission gives pain meaning. Yeah. Gives sacrifice meaning. And I think a lot of us, especially in a very sort of a culture where we have a lot of luxuries and a lot of comfort, we don't have a context for our pain because we don't have a mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's important to figure out this stuff out for ourselves. What is our mission? How do we find our mission? Can we? Yeah. Do you have one? Is it external or internal? Meaning, is a, is a mission given to you, or do you, do you process it out of your and generate it out of your own heart, desire, experiences, those kinds of things? What would you say constitutes a mission? Just off the top of your head, because well, we, you know we're as, just starting to think I'm, about
1: this. As we're thinking about this, like the first thing that comes to mind to me is like Lord of the Rings, mm. right? When Frodo has to take the ring to. Mordor, right. right? Not very nerdy or anything that I'm bringing that up, but you know, <laughs> that's all, a mission though. That's a mission because all along the way, and that's what I was thinking of all the pain that he goes through and all the sacrifice and the loss that he goes through. The only way he keeps going is to further that mission, to accomplish that mission. And so in that context, for me, there was a couple things that are coming to light. One mission, I think has to be bigger than yourself. Right, it has to be kind of for some kind of greater good that is beyond you, and I think when I think of mission as well, I think that it's communal, right? I was just trying to process: can an individual have a mission just for themselves? And in my life, I'm not sure. I think it, I, I think th- here, here, it has to be communal. Let me
0: throw this at you: Do you think? Um, I would say, if an athlete wants to win a gold medal, yeah, I would say that's a goal. Yeah, it's an ambitious goal. It's an, it's an inspirational goal. Not a mission. Yeah. I would say when Jesse Owens realized he wanted to be the first African American athlete or, you know, in Germany under the Nazi games to show the world the equality of all of us. Or the
1: superiority. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Same
0: goal. Yeah. But Jesse has a mission. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's what you're getting at. Communal.
1: Communal. It's it's bigger than yourself. Yeah. I think the last thing for me that maybe constitutes a mission is going back to that thing that you mentioned with like giving meaning to the pain. Hmm. Is that it has to actually cost you something. Yeah. Like you know, if I get up and just make breakfast for myself in the morning, that's not a mission. You know, I'm not on a mission. But that mission takes sacrifice and it takes cost. And so for I, the first three things that came to mind for me I guess overall would be has to be bigger than yourself, has to be communal and it has to cost you something.
0: Yeah. Ooh, I, I I'm right there with you. Yeah. I think it has to be painful. Uh-huh. So it has to cost you something. There has to be a sacrifice. I think the stakes have to be high. Mm. People are going to live or die. Yeah. People are going to succeed or fail. People are going to a justice is going to be done or an injustice is going to be done. Yeah. Uh, I think that and I think it has to be to some degree, and the, the higher degree, the better, the stakes have to be for others. Yeah. And I think it's okay for you to win a gold medal, but I think if your mission would be much bigger than that. Here's the other thing that I think is true. I think you can start out with a goal or a project and have it slowly become a mission yeah. without you realizing. Yep. It. That yep. once you start falling in love with the people that you're serving and the people that you're working with, it becomes less and less about you. Yeah, and it becomes a mission. You find yourself sacrificing things that you thought you were going to get. Yeah. in order to accomplish the mission, it's an elusive idea. Yeah, yep. but I think it. I think it gets to the stuff that um, Victor Frankel talks about with logotherapy, in the sense that you know he's the the Viennese psychologist who contended with Freud and said man's greatest search is that this search for meaning, and he gave this very practical formula for it. Uh, have a project that gets you out of bed in the morning, where the stakes are high, and it serves others. In other words, if you don't get out of bed, somebody's going to hurt. Uh-huh. So you got to get out of bed. I think uh, living in community uh-huh. with people who don't judge you is part of the recipe for experiencing meaning, and then having a redemptive perspective on your suffering. Yeah. Which, if you think about, a mission context gives you a redemptive perspective on your suffering. What that means is you're experiencing pain, but you can always see the upside of it. Yeah. And once you stop seeing the upside of the pain you're experiencing you've probably left the context of a mission. Yeah. And I think one of the things that our guest today has going for him is he has been involved in the mission of stopping people from abusing other people. Yeah. freeing the good guys, the victims and putting the bad guys in jail for the bulk of his life, for the last 30 years, as a lawyer and then and as a prosecutor at the justice department and now as an ambassador in the state department. And I, I just think it has completely changed him. And when we sit there and say, and I'll sit there with John Richmond or Gary Haugen or Shannon Sedgwick Davis, some of our the people we've interviewed, Bob Goff, and I'll think, I need to be more like the Muni Board Justice, and the thing that I always leave out is the mission.
1: Yeah, <laughs> You're not going to yeah. do this yeah.
0: unless Secretary of State Pompeo is expecting you to show up in his office at three o'clock this afternoon, yeah. right? And we can't divorce these things from the context of our narrative. What we can do though is in our organizations and as leaders, we can reverse engineer that narrative and start creating that narrative that actually changes us and makes us mentally tough. Yeah, And I, we're doing that at StoryBrand in yeah. many ways. We're shifting our narrative from just marketing advice to actually developing the entire American workforce, especially knowledge workers, and creating a university that complements, if not competes with the university system in America. That's a mission. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it That's is. That's a mission, and it gets me really excited, mm-hmm. and I get up, I get excited. I get out of bed earlier, uh, I'm willing to sacrifice more of the money, and, you know, because we just got to make this mission happen. So what better guy to talk to about converting a project into a mission? How do you determine your mission? How do you get it going? How do you message it? Who do you involve, and how do you measure it? Yeah. Then Ambassador John Richmond from the United States State Department, by the way, Thank you, John, because yes. <laughs> many people in the State Department said, you're not going on a podcast until we vet everybody within 10 square miles yes, of yes, yes. <laughs> Donald Miller. But John said, I'm doing it anyway, yeah. and came on the show, and I'm very grateful, and hopefully we were, we were honoring to him. He's an incredible human being. Today we're talking about mission. How do you find it? How do you create it? How do you get on it? How do you get other people involved? And how does it change lives? Here's my conversation with Ambassador John Richmond. Ambassador Richmond, thanks for joining us.
2: It's great to be with you, Don.
0: John, you have a really unique position. It's, a, it's an incredible position at the State Department, but you're a very different ambassador from most ambassadors. We think of the ambassador to France. We think of the ambassador to Great Britain. You are an ambassador not to a country, but to an issue. Are you the only ambassador who is like that?
2: No, we've actually got six different ambassadors at large, or ambassadors that Um, cover uh, the whole globe, but on one topic. And so instead of being, like you said, an ambassador to a specific place on a wide variety of topics, I'm an ambassador to the whole world on behalf of the U.S. government, um, but just on the issue of trafficking in persons. And so from that post, uh, I'm just so grateful that I get to do this. We get to lead out on U.S. foreign policy to all the countries in the world about how they can do better at combating human trafficking.
0: I know that – I don't want to sound um, trite here – But uh, that human trafficking is an enormous issue. Why is it that the country, what is it in the interest of the country that we would say we need to stop human trafficking globally? Why why did the State Department say we've got to tackle this issue? How bad is the issue? How is it affecting uh, the world? How is it affecting people? Because there are a lot of issues that we need to think about. But this one was a big one. They said we're actually going to have an ambassador on this.
2: Yeah, I I think that it's an issue that is unique amongst the issues that are affecting the world. It's obviously a massive problem. Uh, Estimates are that 24.9 million slaves exist today. Um, That is, traffickers are trafficking more people today than ever before in human history when you look at just the raw number. And so it's a huge problem. It's a problem that, um, that tears down markets, tears down societies, um, it's anti-competitive from a business perspective, and it's a violation of people's human rights. And so I think it's one of these issues that there's a great sense of urgency around, that we really wanna tackle it. Um, and there's a clear mission that the United States wants to be a leader in this space and make sure that the world is moving away from and not towards uh, commoditizing other human beings.
0: I think it's one of the issues that makes us, uh, and rightly so, because we care about things like this, a moral authority in the world. And, and there are a lot of my idealist friends, my you know friends uh, out of the university system, who would say, "Why should America lead the world? What you know? What's so great about us?" But when you compare us to, uh, you know, what I'll call a regime in China and the the sort of uh, lack of uh, concern about human rights in some of these uh, other countries. I think it's important to have somebody like you doing the work that you are doing for us to maintain a sort of moral authority. It also gives us leverage in negotiations, doesn't
2: it? It does. And we don't do it alone. I mean, obviously, what underpins all of this is the idea that every single person has inherent value, that there's human dignity in everyone. And so the United States gets to lead in that, but we get to lead with others. And so there's lots of partners across the globe that have all made a commitment around this. In fact, one of the things that I think is unique is that there's a grand consensus that human trafficking is wrong. The United Nations uh, Protocol Against Trafficking in Persons is one of the most widely adopted UN protocols in the world. Hmm. So there's international agreement that we need to do something about trafficking in persons.
0: So if we weren't doing something like this, it would cost us in a UN presence. It would cost us in global relationships – to say that we're not doing anything on this issue that is so important. You guys handle it. There's, I guess what I'm getting at, John, is there are so many skeptics who just say, why don't we just care about ourselves? And I want to make an argument for the idea. No, America is much bigger than that. It's a much bigger idea. It's not just a country. It's an idea that needs to spread.
2: I think that's right. And the idea around human dignity, uh, this idea about human rights, it affects the United States internally. We have um, human traffickers operating in the United States, exploiting people that are here. But we also have human trafficking that's affecting U.S. companies' supply chains. We have it affecting the procurement policies of organizations as they want to make sure that there's not forced labor coming up through their vendors. And so if there is no way to wall ourselves off and say that we're not affected by international commerce and global uh, trade. And so I think making sure that we're doing that in a way that protects human rights is uh, at the heart of what America is about.
0: John, give me an example. I mean, what is something that you guys have accomplished in, in your time there as ambassador that you, that you really feel like okay, we made progress on this issue?
2: It, it's so important to see the, the, these markers of progress to keep us motivated as we're moving forward. Yeah. But you know, I've only been in this job for ten months, um, and we've already seen, I think, clear signs that that progress is being made and. And perhaps it's easiest to understand in a specific example of an individual and seeing a country that's taking steps uh, to build a specialized unit that's going to be able to address trafficking and they go out and identify a specific victim and then realize that their law really does make a difference. Hmm. And we've seen that. We've seen individuals that have have moved from exploitation into freedom. We've seen traffickers that have moved from enjoying near impunity to having um, real accountability. And as we continue to do that, as we see that go, people believe that it can happen again. And so in many ways, we're grabbing on to the rusty wheels of broken public justice systems, and we're turning them. Even yeah. if it's just one crank of the turn, we're, we're helping them move. And the more we do that, the more rep, we do it with repetition, we make sure that we're persistent and consistent in that, um, we see real progress. When we talk to our team all the time, we talk about this idea that we're, we're playing an orchard, not a garden. Hmm. Gardens produce immediate fruit in season. You can plant a plant and within a few months you'll have um, your vegetable or you'll have your fruit. Orchards take years. The tree has to grow in the first season or two that it produces fruit, the apples aren't even all that good. And then that third or fourth season, it really becomes great. You can still measure progress the whole time. You can measure the diameter of the trunk and the number of branches, but we're in this for the long haul. This is gonna be a project that's gonna take the next 20 years. Um, and we have to have a long-term perspective to make that happen.
0: Do you ever sit down with the, the leader of a foreign country, let's say a new leader, maybe there's been a takeover? You know, in that situation, it seems like you would uh, maybe sit down and say, hey, here's, the, here's how I want you to re- be remembered in the world on this issue. And here's what's in it for you if you tackle this issue. And here's, and of course, the massive leverage of the favor of the United States government hangs in the balance. How do you convert somebody who may even be just trying to hold on to power uh, to care about this?
2: You know, It's funny, I'm hopping on a plane and at the end of next week, and I'm gonna go meet with the head of state and this very discussion will happen. Hmm. I make the argument like this. I I tell them that not only is this the right thing to do from a moral sense, not only is it the best thing for your country's economy to have a free market-based workforce, but this is a winning political issue. Hmm. You know, there is no other side of the aisle for trafficking. There's no criticism for stopping it. This is something that you can employ a modest amount of resources to and get a huge political win.
0: It's a way of stopping a coup from the people. It's a way of stopping pitchforks and, and torches if you can actually do something about this and message it. And you can actually position this as a political advantage to whoever that leader is.
2: Absolutely. You know, there is no wrong time to do the right thing. And we encourage governments to take bold steps towards addressing this. And that could position them as a regional leader. It could position them as an international leader on this topic. Um, and I think it's something that if governments choose to to do, they can build out the infrastructure that is necessary to make this happen. And if they do that, it's not only the right thing for the individual victims, but it it makes a better environment for foreign direct investment, for businesses to do partnerships and invest in these countries, um, and make sure that the supply chains are clean. So it's a good project all around, and it's the right thing.
0: When you took over this position, how did you determine what the mission of the office was? Were you handed a mission? How much agency did you have When you came in uh, under Pompeo, were you under Pompeo first or were you under Tillerson?
2: So um, I uh, was going through my Senate confirmation process under Tillerson, um, but by the time I was sworn in, it was by Secretary Pompeo.
0: Okay, so you've known Pompeo as a boss exclusively Indeed. in this position. Yep. How, did he hand you a mission or did you did he hand you some objectives and then you had to, you know, I want to talk in, the, in this episode of the podcast about how do you frame a mission, how do you get buy-in for the mission, and how do you make the mission work?
2: Absolutely. So the office has had a pretty clear mission since its inception. In 2000, Congress passed a statute creating the office uh, to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. And the mission has been crystal clear from the beginning. And so a lot of what I have been doing is trying to create focus around that mission, to make it feel both urgent and doable. And so our mission is at its very heart. If we had to sum it up in one word, it's all about freedom. Hmm. We're trying to make sure that people are free. Right now, there's way too many people that wake up in the morning And they don't get to decide where they work or who touches their bodies. People are forcing them. And so they're not free to innovate. They're not free to create. They're not free to do the things that that are on their mind. And we want to make sure that they are. And so around that, we are catalyzing global efforts to combat trafficking in persons, both here in the United States as well as around the world. And so it's around that fundamental mission that we want people to be free. And the cost of not being free is huge. Did you come up with that language yourself? or Because it, it, it sounds
0: like language that you would sit down and say, how do I get people to understand the importance of this mission? And I'm going to need to you know, w- do what we do here at StoryBrand. I'm going to need to somehow come up with some language that helps people understand. Where if you just said to your staff, you have about 80 on staff, is that right? And you're... We've got about
2: 80 80 folks here on staff, and we manage about $140 in terms of assistance around the world that we're working on, plus our budget to operate.
0: So coming in and saying, hey, we want to combat human trafficking is one thing. Coming in and saying everybody deserves to be free, and we exist to help set them free is a whole other thing. You get more passion, you get more engagement, you get more buy-in. I would imagine you use that kind of language, you might get more money from Congress, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or at least the constituents of Congress calling their Congress uh, representatives, congressional representatives saying, give this department more money. Uh, did you come up with that
2: language yourself? You know, I, I worked with a team here as, as we did that, but certainly was involved in trying to figure out how do we crystallize this, because the, the reality is almost everyone's going to agree with us if we say, are you against human trafficking? Well, there's no there's no group of people caucusing for more slavery in the world. Right. So it, there there is this agreement. The problem is people feel this sense of fatigue. This yes. sense of it's just one of these big hairy global problems that we can't do anything about. Right. And when people don't have hope, and they don't understand the purpose of what you're doing, it's hard to get them to be willing to motivate and act.
0: How do you in terms of messaging? How do you overcome that fatigue? How do you come in and say? you know, we're not going to solve this issue in its entirety uh, in the next few years. We can help these people, though, today. Do you get micro in your messaging where you're talking about specific people who've been affected by trafficking, what the department has done to help them? How do you help people understand, uh, no, you do need to get off the couch and do something. This is not an impossible issue.
2: Yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about the individual, but then we also spend some time talking about the movement. That is the sense of we can do something historic. Uh, You know, for most Hmm. of the 4,000 years of recorded history, there's been some sort of legalized, culturally accepted, religiously endorsed human trafficking going on. Uh, From Incas and Aztecs to Mayans and Greeks and Romans and Hebrews and Chinese and Indians, like people have been forcing each other to work. They've been using power to coercively exploit people in commerce. And that was the whole course of human history until about 220 years ago. And then we had a small group of people beginning to say the slave trade was wrong. Is this
0: Wilberforce in Great Britain? Is he part of that? Indeed,
2: yeah, yeah. Indeed, the Clapham Sect that was led by Wilberforce and William Pitt and Thomas Clarkson, all those guys in 1807 ended the slave trade in the in the United Kingdom. And that the the domino led to Lincoln and on and on. Absolutely. And so if you take it like that middle school timeline of history, and you have four thousand years. And then in the last 200 years, we've seen every country in the world say that slavery is wrong, that human trafficking is not accepted. We'd have leaders of every world religion say our sacred texts do not support human trafficking. We have this massive hinge of history. And so we've got this grand consensus that slavery is wrong. And now the question is, are we going to make those parchment protections of law reality for the people who need help? And so we get to be a part of this movement of implementation of building delivery systems of justice and delivery systems of protection that can help the individuals that need assistance. And our job is to work with governments around the world to make that a reality. How do we take these broken public justice delivery systems and make them work? And we've got a plan to do that. We've got specific things that these countries can do to improve the way that they implement their domestic law to stop traffickers.
0: We'll be right back with the rest of my conversation in just a moment. My friend Amy Lacey started a company, and in the first year she ran the company, she lost a quarter million dollars. She has a company called Cauliflower Foods. She lost a quarter million dollars, but she knew she had a cauliflower pizza crust that people were loving. She knew she could scale it up. A marketing agency came to her and said, look, for $25,000 a month, we'll help you do this. And she said, boy, you know, I'm already down quarter million. I know we can scale up $25,000 a month, a lot of money. I've just heard about this company called Story Brand. I think I want to investigate that first and then I'll get back to you. She came to us. She realized she really just needed to clarify her message and she could probably run most of her marketing by herself as long as her message was clear. She did clarify her message. She did run her marketing by herself and she did make $6 million the first year. The first year after the quarter million dollar loss, she made six million. The second year, which was last year, 2018, she made $20 million. That company is booming. She never hired that marketing agency for $25,000 a month. She does buy a lot of marketing. She handles it in house. $20 million, that's the difference. Here's what Amy did. She showed up at a live workshop. She clarified her message. Then she actually hired one of our private workshop facilitators and got her entire team around a table to clarify the message understand it, and then develop a plan to execute it. You need a private workshop for your company. Before you go spend a ton of money on marketing, you need a private workshop. Just go to storybrand.com slash private workshop, storybrand.com slash private workshop. Hire one of our facilitators. Don't go wasting a ton of money on marketing. Clarify your message. It worked for Amy. It has worked for hundreds and hundreds of other companies. It will work for you. Go to storybrand.com slash private workshop. Hire one of our facilitators today. You were handed the mission. That's phase one, is determine the mission. Phase two might be to message the mission. I've watched you, and because we're friends, I know what you're doing around the world. It seems like there's another phase uh, where you are deciding who to include and who to educate on the mission. So you've been to the Vatican, You've been in many, many countries, uh, including about the 15 where the biggest problems are actually taking place. And also before you were ambassador, United States ambassador, you were going around. I remember uh, attending a lecture that you did here at Vanderbilt Law and you were trying to help law students understand and recruit them to go in to combat human trafficking. How do you decide who are the people that I need to talk to? I imagine it is not a shotgun approach. I mean, there are strategic relationships you want to build. How did you determine who those people were?
2: Well, first, I should say how patient you were to come to a law school class. (laughs) I thought it was a fantastic
0: class.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was so much fun to be in Vanderbilt. I tell you, who we include, we have to build partnerships in order to get this done. No one's going to be able to do it on their own. And so, indeed, faith communities, whether it's um, the Vatican or other faith-based groups, they're going to be a part of it. They don't operate within borders. They don't operate within jurisdictions. They have a broad network that extends around the world.
0: Is that specifically to get their constituents to understand and to use the leveraging power of, say, the Catholic Church in all of these countries to pressure uh, leaders to do more on the issue? What what strategically maybe were you trying to do at the Vatican?
2: They can do a number of things. They can um, help identify victims. There's so many uh, sisters and uh, women religious. There's all sorts of development programs um, run by faith-based communities that can help us identify victims in individual localities. They can also help apply pressure to governments to actually enact policies to implement the laws that are on their books that can actually help individual victims and stop specific traffickers. The other thing that they can do is help us push back against traffickers that are using religion as a means of coercion to Mm. compel people to work. And we know that traffickers throughout history have consistently used the trappings of faith in order to exploit people. And so we want to build those partnerships with faith communities, but also with academics. We want to build them with other countries. We want to use the multilateral context in terms of the United Nations or the Organization for American States and things of that nature. So we want broad strategic partnerships that can drive us towards our clear goal.
0: Ambassador, when when you go into a situation like this, when you go into a meeting—and I keep bringing up the Vatican because I want to be very careful not to bring up countries that you don't want to talk about right now because there are things happening, right? When you go to the Vatican, do you have a briefing that says, here are the objectives of this meeting? How much of it is listening and understanding versus trying to get these people to join this coalition and do strategic things? How do you as a diplomat and a leader, and let's face it, a CEO, how do you get a such a broad mission across and then clear calls to action in hopes that, you know, very large institutions would do something on the behalf of the mission?
2: I definitely have clear uh, strategy for each meeting that we've written out, that we've thought through.
0: And you have a team that's prepping you on that and so forth?
2: Yeah, and obviously the whole rest of the State Department and the executive branch in terms of how we're going in before we meet with a country or before we meet with a, a big group like the Vatican. But it does start, once we have that strategy, with listening. Um, It starts trying to understand how, uh, what does the group that we are engaging with, what do they value, what do they need, what is the problem that they have, and how can we help them solve that? And so we're definitely thinking about, in your framework, positioning ourselves as the guide, um, how can we help countries resolve the problem? They want to implement their law. They want to make sure that their people are protected. They want to make sure that, um, that evil does not triumph over good, and we're going to try to be in a position to help them do that. And so by listening to them, figuring out what are the pain points that they're feeling around this issue of trafficking in persons, we can then move in with our plan to help address that.
0: In, in terms of being a diplomat, I'll give you some hypothetical scenarios here. Country A uh, has uh, a lot of people locked up in, in what are the equivalent of concentration camps. Uh, but our trade with country A is extremely important. Uh, the president, maybe the vice president, uh, maybe secretary of state are on their way to country A to deal with some trade <laughs> negotiations. Do they tell you to be quiet on some issues? When uh, h- How does that work when you could actually disrupt the whole thing? Are they using some of the stats that come out in the trafficking in persons report uh, as leverage? are we quiet in some countries or about some countries because our trade with them is so important? I wish I could actually get into specifics. I don't want to do that. I'm, I don't want to step on any landmines. But how do you handle the diplomacy and sometimes probably have to compromise on not saying some things in order to get a bigger mission done? I mean, how are you dealing with the enormous bureaucracy of what you're having to, where you, you have a level of influence?
2: Uh, you're wise to to recognize that when we deal with countries, there's a lot of different issues on the table. Um, There's a lot of things that are happening from trade to military and security, counterterrorism. We're thinking about the environment. We're thinking about human rights. And we're thinking about trafficking in persons. One thing that I'm really grateful for is no one's ever suggested that we need to be quiet about human trafficking and that we are out there delivering a message. And we can walk and chew gum at the same time, particularly with our friends. We can communicate that. There's some progress that needs to be made. Here are some specific ways to do it. And we can prioritize that even while we're trying to make sure that all the other issues are moving forward.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm actually really glad to hear that. I think there are probably a lot of cynics who would think, no, we are. We do close our mouths. We don't talk about things. When we have, uh, when we have arms deals with certain people, when we have trade deals with certain people, we sort of look the other way. And uh, I'm glad to hear that that, is, that has never been asked of you.
2: One of the ways about that, Don, is that it's structural. Like by creating the position that I have as a US. ambassador just on the topic of trafficking, that is the topic I'm supposed to talk about, right? And so like like everywhere I go, I'm engaging with countries on that topic specifically. We're trying to communicate around the around these issues of freedom. Okay, I'm, I'm, I finally want to get
0: to where we talk about what your actual mission is, what what you go into a country and ask them to do. But before we do that, again, because we have so many people who are running so many important missions, I think there's so much to learn from you on how to actually frame and execute a mission. How do you go to say the Secretary of State and report the progress of your mission? Do do you have predetermined metrics that you guys have put in place, and then you're staying accountable to those?
2: We do. We've got a set of minimum standards, is what we call them, that countries are supposed to be doing in order to combat trafficking. Uh, we focus on some of those minimum standards, focus on their legal framework. Some focus on the implementation of the criminal justice response. Some focus on the implementation of the uh, protection services that uh, victims are supposed to receive. We go in, we measure each country against this predetermined set of minimum standards. We make an honest and faithful assessment that has integrity to it. We publish that every summer in our trafficking in persons report, and we rank countries uh, on f- a ranking system of tier one to tier three. And tier three countries, if you're not meeting minimum standards, there's a penalty. There's a sanction. Those countries lose all non-humanitarian foreign assistance from the U.S. government. And so we've got some teeth in this law, and we have an honest ranking system that we're out there uh, promoting. And then that system also includes Action items, a clear plan of what the country needs to do in terms of next steps to improve. You take the TIP report, Trafficking in Persons report, probably to
0: Congress. You deliver to Congress, and they understand uh, who the tier three countries are, and, and, and there are financial punishments uh, that uh, take place. What does Congress do with that report? How do they actually use that report uh, to make change in the world?
2: You know, they, they can use it in a couple of different ways. Uh, Certainly, the Foreign Relations Committee often takes it with them when they travel and they do congressional delegations to different countries. They bring this up in meetings. They bring it up to to leaders when they're visiting here in the United States. They use it as, um, I I think, sort of the anchoring tool of how we start a conversation about human trafficking in these countries. Um, And we want to make sure that we have this sort of robust presence. In addition, folks in Congress, as well as folks in our office, uh, we go out to, um, I think we were in 60 countries last year, in-person, physical presence, making sure that these conversations are being had, that we're ground-truthing claims, making sure that if someone says there is a shelter for victims, there's one really there. We're we're trying to to ground-truth in prosecutors' offices uh, whether cases are really moving forward. And the report gives us a, a fantastic tool in order to get our job done.
0: It would be a scary thing to be the leader of a country and suddenly make the tier three, you know, level in the trafficking in persons report uh, from the State Department. You've got to get some pretty angry calls, I would imagine, it, when that sort of thing happens. How do you deal with uh, when you hold a country accountable for doing evil things? What happens?
2: You know, nobody wants to be held accountable for the things that aren't going well, whether it's in our personal life or it's yeah. in, uh, you know, as a country. Uh, those are hard conversations, um, and so we go in with a lot of empathy. We know that these are challenging circumstances, a lot of empathy, but also a lot of honesty and just candor about what needs to be done.
0: So you tell them, "Here's how to get out of tier three. Here's what. Here's best practices. Here's what you can do." Uh, here's why you should do it. Here's how to get the funding back, those kinds of things. You're you you you're not there just to police them. You're there to rehabilitate some of these countries.
2: Absolutely. We give them a clear plan, both short-term and long-term action items that they need to do. And I can tell you one thing that's been helpful for me is having worked in this field for a long time, having spent so much time with survivors, having worked so many cases, having sat down and talked to so many traffickers about how they decided to commit this crime and what motivated them. I have a sense of, of kind of how this crime happens and its impact on people. And so we can bring those personal experiences. We can bring these. We, we've seen governments improve in the past. We've been a part of that. And we can bring that experience to bear when we're trying to help other countries. John,
0: I've known you for a long time, uh, more than a decade now. You have always been a mission-driven human being. What is it about you that you choose a mission over maybe some more comfort in life, I guess is how I'll say it.
2: No, I don't normally frame it that way when I'm thinking about it. I always just thought, I want to use my time, my my short season professionally, to make the biggest difference and have the most fun while I do it. And (laughs) it is so much fun to get to watch and see teams being built around a mission and go out and make a huge difference. So whether it's working a specific case and seeing someone come into freedom and then learn how to deal with trauma and thrive, the resiliency that, that they display, or the fun of getting to, to think through how we can help a trafficker uh, understand what they did, even from prison, and get a better get better clarity about the crime that they committed. I mean, I don't say fun in an entertaining way, fun in a sense of you know that your work is laden with meaning and purpose. It's that Viktor Frankl idea that, that you talk about so often, this this sense of why being established. And I think when we can anchor people around the why of what we're doing and we can give them hope that it's actually possible, we actually can make a he- not just a dent in human trafficking. I think you know we can actually stop institutional systemic human trafficking around the world. And if we put our effort towards that goal and we believe it's possible, I think we can have an incredibly meaningful work experience and we can build teams that are willing to go the extra mile.
0: It seems like you're a guy who loves setting victims free and loves putting bad guys in jail. It's the closest thing you get to live to an old-time Western in <laughs> this day and age.
2: You know, it's certainly fun being able to make sure that wrong things are being made right. I think it's one of this, the core principles um, of our country and that we're trying to live up to is this sense of let's make wrong things right. Whether it's seeing a piece of trash on the ground and putting it in the, in the trash can, like we're taking disorder and we're bringing order to it. And if we can do that as a community, if we can build a team around a mission and help people understand that that it's doable, I think we can make a huge difference.
0: Ambassador Richmond, thank you for being on the show today.
2: Thanks for your friendship.
0: You had the pleasure, JJ, the privilege <laughs> of sitting down with, with I Ambassador Richmond. I know. Yeah,
1: I would actually say he's one of. There's many people along my uh, PhD journey that helped me finish, and I remember we were sitting at Mo's, <laughs> like we were having. That's right, we we're having a <laughs> Mexican little at Mexican restaurant, yeah, uh, with some nacho cheese. And he was like, "So, how's your PhD going?" And I was saying, "Well, at that point, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to finish because I don't know, I don't need it anymore, really, and it's just kind of." And he just looked me in the eye across the table and said, no, you're going to finish. And it was kind of like, well, no, I don't know. And he goes, no, you need to finish. And he just like, hearing it from him, it was just the weirdest thing. I That was yeah. a shift in my in my thinking about finishing. That, and he, it, when
0: somebody's on a mission, they have more authority well, automatically he almost somehow. In a
1: way, we had more of a conversation, but he actually gave me a mission because at that point... I saw it as a project because yeah. I didn't need it anymore. I wasn't teaching in the sense I wasn't in the education system anymore. Yeah. I was doing marketing and branding. And yes, I knew that it would help me and give me more credibility in this space, but I didn't need it. And he gave me – he we had a whole conversation around why it was important for me to finish. Yeah. And it wasn't long. It was maybe like three or four minutes, but he – Put my PhD in a mission perspective, and is one of the people who is the reason that I finished. I
0: think a great leader can help you find your mission yep. and can help you turn projects into mission. Yep. Sometimes it just takes somebody sitting across from you saying, "This is incredibly important."
1: That's that's exactly what, what you are
0: doing is important. Yep, and you're going to have to sacrifice for it. You have to make it happen. There's the stakes are high.
1: And then each time I saw, I've probably seen him three or four times since then, and each time he asked me about it. Like no. it was one of the first things he just be like, Have you seen him going. since you got it done? I have not. No. <laughs> no, I was supposed to see him in DC a, a while back, but we just missed paths. So, uh, but yeah, I'm excited to. There I there hope he go. hears this and let and he knows how much JJ it made did difference.
0: It. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm an incredible conversation, inspirational every time I talk to uh, Ambassador Richmond. It just makes me want to even more tighten up the mission that we're on, that I'm yeah. on because I think it gives a great depth of meaning to our lives. Mm -hmm. And a meaning is an antidote for anxiety. It's an antidote for depression. Mission actually matters. I hope everybody listening can find and live theirs. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or on Apple Music. Thanks so much for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to find your mission.